You're listening to This Is How, a podcast about people forging digital careers for people who are taking the time to figure things out. Whether you've just left school, college or uni, or you're already in a job but you're not feeling it, we made a podcast series full of tips, ideas and free advice from people who've been on similar journeys, changed things up and gone on to work in digital roles with some of the most interesting brands in the UK. I'm Zoe Mallet. I'm a life coach and radio show host. My coaching focuses on helping people figure out where they are, where they want to be, and then we work out how we're going to get them there. I also have a radio show on Foundation FM, which allows listeners to message in with all their problems. And my guests and I offer our professional advice and tips live on a mix with some bangers. I'm Will Stowe, proudly from Hackney, an air of shoulder to those around me. I work for Sneakers as a co-host on Sneakers Live. We have regular live streams to talk all things sneaker culture. Also write poetry, make music, and throw parties in my spare time. All right, so we are here today, and we have a special guest. He goes by the name, I'm going to say it properly, Carl Vinicario. Is that good? Very close, very close. Finocchiaro. Finocchiaro. Vinocchiaro. Oh, you did on. it good come the on. first time. We don't get a stage fright. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying it correctly. So, Carl, we always ask our guests to prepare two truths and a lie because we feel it helps uh, us and the listeners get to know you a little bit more. So you've prepared um, three things and we're going to try and guess which one is a lie. Let's go. All right. So I walked in on Arsene Wenger in the bathroom. I've crawled through a snake-infested tunnel in Australia and I have a Premier League medal for 100 appearances. What was happening in the bathroom when you walked in? Can you disclose that? <laughs> what do you think happens in the bathroom? <laughs> what are you doing in the bathroom, mate? <laughs> Probably the same thing Arsene was doing. How much detail do you want? <laughs> it's a kid's show, guys. Just keep it PG. <laughs> it's a good show, it's a good show. Um, I feel like the snake one is true. I feel like that's too typical. Like, I'm in Australia, I've seen a spider, I've seen a snake. Like, come on. <laughs> I once punched a kangaroo, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Or maybe he's like, he's playing us. Maybe. I believe the, the 100 appearances. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, the 100 appearances? So do you know do you know um, any Arsenal footballers from the past? If I so do you know who Francis Cochrane is? Yeah, he plays for he plays for Villarreal and uh, and somehow I'm not sure, but I ended up with his uh, 100 appearances Premier League medal. I don't think he wanted it, so I I now have it. It's just up over there. Okay, that's quite a cool story. Okay, I'm gonna go for this. I think the snake's the lie. Yeah. Arsene Wenger's bathroom. Mate, you got to be kidding me. You know, well, I'm never going to walk in on the boss. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it were true. No, no, no. Ar- Arsene was a, is, is a lovely, lovely man. But, mate, I'm not going near his hotel room. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> I thought this would be no like changing rooms or something. Ah, no, mate. No, mate. No, mate. There you go. No. So what happened with all the snakes? Well, I had to pull the, a cable for these camera positions, right, at these racetracks in the middle of Australia. And no one told me that there was a snake-infested tunnel. So I just went through dragging my cable and then over the tannoy, so that's a big loudspeaker, they said, can that idiot in the black shirt 
get away from that snake infested tunnel. And I went, what? And then the comms came over go, I think they're talking about you. I'm like, I'm positive they're talking about me. <laughs> 100% talking about me. And snakes back home are no joke, right? They're no joke, man. They, they kill you. So, yeah, I, let's just say I didn't crawl back through it. What did you do? I would have just panicked. I'm, I'm not particularly put off by creeper crawlies that bad. So I didn't panic. If someone had told me while I was in it, <laughs> I would have panicked. But the fact I got out with my little cable and everything was good, I was chill about it. But, yeah, I didn't go back through the tunnel. Oh, at least you got the cable, though. Yeah, I got the cable through. All right, cool. Thank you for joining us today, Carl. Um, if you could tell us, you know, what's your job title and break it down for us. Yeah, yeah, no no problems at all. Thanks for having me on, guys. Um, my job title, I'm the current uh, head of content at social at NBA Europe. Um, that's only quite recent. Before that, I was the head of content production, um, but I'm taking on uh, an expanded remit looking after social media as well this year. So that'll be basically all the content that goes across any of our owned and operated social platforms across Europe. So that's, uh, we've got Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, and on Facebook and Twitter, there are regional accounts. So we've got six per different regions. One of the challenges of our region is all the different languages. Um, so there's quite, quite a few accounts out there that we're, we're looking after and need to service. And of course, we've got a YouTube channel as well. Sick, sick. So if you could just talk us through like a normal day for you, what you get up to. Normal. <laughs> there, there aren't too many normal days, uh, I'll tell you what. Um, quite often, a lot of the time, I'm coordinating a lot of things. I come from a production background, so I used to be like properly in edit suites all the time and doing that kind of stuff. Um, this is the first job I've had where I'm not, where we've got an external production company does it. So a lot of what I do in the in the day is make, keep them ticking along with all the things we have to do. Uh, a lot of meetings about what content's coming up. And then if I can do a bit of forward planning as well on like what content do we want to do? Like you've got to be, you've got to be always thinking, you know, months out. But in sport, the churn is so high. You're often dealing with what's happening tomorrow or two days' time. So it's hugely reactive and your days can vary a lot. Like last night, Giannis and Tadakumpo um, won the finals and was the finals MVP. So straight away your day shifts first thing in the morning and you're then extraordinarily tired. How many pieces of content do you put out per week on average? <laughs> well, well it's, that's a tricky one. That's a tricky one. Because right now I think we're putting out what we are actually originally generating from this production company and like original content right now before you know because we haven't i haven't been um looking after social for that for that long we're putting out like three to four bits a week but when you layer in all the other things that you do like what's a piece of content right is it a graphic you know like we're putting out um you know 10 15 posts a day on instagram you know if we're live tweeting a match you know we can have third uh, match a game so i'm still in football mode um, uh, when you're live tweeting a game, you can have like 30 tweets that night. Um, so there is a lot, like the flood of posts across all our social platforms and then the content we distribute. Oh, mate, you, 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 you're putting out 100 pieces a day, really. And it's very, very similar to how it was at Arsenal in that respect. How many people then are involved in creating like up to 100 bits of content a day? A fair few. So on our side at the NBA, we've got 
myself and another producer, we're about to expand and add on another two producers because we want to increase our volume, right? We want to increase our original content output. Um, so we're going to move up to having four people. Um, we've got an edit staff and producers at our offsite production team. They've got about four editors that are pretty much assigned to us all the time. Um, a sound mixing studio there that is on call, but they're not just waiting for us to send them stuff. Uh, a graphic designer as well there. And then on the social side, we've got the six community managers plus two overseeing community managers plus another uh, social guy in house who looks, who's our head of social, uh, who sits, who sits under me. So I've lost count of how many people that is. <laughs> I think it's like about 15 or something like that. Uh, so the NBA is American. What do you do from like your teams within like the UK? No, that's a good question. So the, the NBA is the mothership and where they've got a huge office in New York and an, and an incredibly in, in, impressive installation in New Jersey. And from there, you've got like 80, 90% of the operation, right, for the league. But, you know, the NBA knows it has to internationalise, right? So we've actually got regional offices all around the world. And our job is to connect on a more regional level. So for us, for, for my particular part of the company my job is engaging with those fans making content for them getting them uh, as part of our social social media um, family whatever you want to call it communities the, the more appropriate word we've got our partnerships team who will be driving partnerships with maybe local sponsors and things like that brands that don't exist in the US can do localized sponsorship deals here because because the, the NBA brand is super duper strong and like everyone knows about us throughout Europe, even if you're not an NBA fan, you've definitely heard of us. Uh, and that that model is actually replicated all around the all around the world. You've even got a media distribution team who looks after um, how our rights are sold throughout the region, um, communications uh, department looking after um, how the the broader media um, interacts with us. So. If, BBC want to do a story or whatever, they're coming through our regional office to, to access. Um, and also fan events and things like that. We haven't been able to put any on in the last 18 months, but those fan events, uh, um, again, they're regionally managed. So the NBA sits back there in the US and oversees everything. We're in constant contact with them, but we've got our regional objectives, which feed into the bigger picture, which is growing the game. So... You studied in Australia. Uh, what was it that you studied? Well, I'm showing my age here, right? But I, d I did a Bachelor of Media. So these days at uni, it'll be split up into like digital media, visual media, all that kind of stuff. But back in the olden days, it was just a Bachelor of Media. And then you kind of pick, you might call it a major over here. Do you, I don't know what you call it. But let's say the, the focus. And my focus was always in video production. Basically, they give you a big, broad degree, and then you kind of pick, like, do you head off into writing? Do you, do you head off into video production? Do you head off into this and that? And I, I lent into video production. Nowadays, that would be its own degree. I, you know, I'm fairly certain, like, digital media is its own degree and these kind of things. And what was it about uh, doing media uh, that you kind of, that drawed you to it? 
I have always wanted to work in TV and sports TV. I just wanted to be a part of it. I was growing up like a huge consumer of sport. I love sport. I love watching sport. I could watch literally almost any sport and enjoy it, bar golf. What, what's wrong? What How come not golf? golf? You guys did, did the opposite. What's right with golf? <laughs> Some of them wear like cute jumpers. Yeah, cashmere <laughs> jumpers. And cool polos as well. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think it's a hobby that they're just selling off as a sport, basically. <laughs> so, what was your your media course like? Oh, mate, it was uh, <laughs> it was it was a little bit loose. Like the first couple of years of uni, I wasn't. I don't think I was the best student. That's for sure. But the course was was awesome because it was there was a lot of and I took all the creatively focused courses so like creative writing I did uh, like drama and acting and things like that so it was all stuff where you're like surrounded by creative people and um, you're doing that kind of stuff where you're watching movies and analyzing the sound the subtext and all that kind of stuff and writing a lot of essays which I thought at the time was a waste of time uh, writing essays but in the end that is like what a bedrock skill that's become, you know, because that's all life is, is like formulating arguments for things, right? And that's what an essay is. It's just practicing, putting together an argument to prove a point. And, uh, and I, I, for essay writing at the time feels so tedious, but then you get to the end of it. It's properly sunk in. You know how to formulate an argument and you advance your writing skills. And what was your journey after graduating? Journey after graduating was that, like a lot of people, you get out of uni and you're like, oh, wow, <laughs> this is scary. You look in, like in the olden days, uh, you look in a newspaper and you're looking for, for jobs. It, it, it's so much easier to, to find jobs and the, the way it all works is, is, makes it simpler, I think, these days. Um, but, and you're just going through everything with, which might suit you. So I was looking through the job ads, all the rest of it, and you're like, oh, is that kind of me? Is that me? And eventually I took a job as a media planner buyer. Um, and that, that because you see media in the title, right? Like, oh, yeah, that's me. I did a media degree. <laughs> Little did I know, it was a bit more toward the advertising sector where you get like a, a client would have X amount of, and this is first job out of uni, right? X amount of million dollars, they want to reach a target demographic and you go back with the advice like, hey, put billboards up here, buy two pages in a magazine, um, buy some ads in this popular TV show, all this kind of stuff. But truth be told, I, I absolutely hated it. And when they called me in to extend my probation, I said, uh, nope, <laughs> I'd rather just leave at the end of the week. <laughs> yeah, see you later, guys. Which They, they were shocked because, you know, this was a reputable firm as well. And I was just like, nah, it's not for me. Because that, that thing about creativity, right, it's just like there wasn't that part of the job. When you quit, did you know what you wanted to do? Yeah, I kind of did. I, well, first thing, I knew it wasn't that. Um, and I knew I had to look a bit harder for what it was I wanted to do. But, yeah, I knew that I needed a job or at least I needed to try to get a job which had some form of creative output because, uh, you know, I, you do all that stuff at uni, you're, you know, a creative person, you've got ideas and you sat there booking advertising space and it just wasn't, wasn't for me. So I thought I'm young, you know, you know, you've got to, I don't want to say take a, take a risk. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's what you've got to do when you're young. Like 
you know, you don't have kids, you don't have mortgages and all that. So you're like, you know what? I'm gonna have a swing here and, and concentrate on getting the job I really want. Um then what happened um after you quit? After I quit, I applied for every job under the sun. It was uh, I applied for all sorts of jobs, got some um not all sorts of jobs, but all sorts of jobs that I wanted to do, like the Weather Channel in Australia, um, you know, working in production there, all these kinds of things. I got a couple interviews and loads of knockback letters. I've got a stack of knock knockback letters at home and uh, your confidence wavers. And I got to, uh, I, was, I was getting pretty down about it. And I, I said to my dad, because I was good at maths at school, I said, you know what, F this. And when I hit 150 rejections, I'm going to become an accountant and that's it. And uh, I got to 126. <laughs> so I was t- t- 24 job applications away from being an accountant just because I was like, maybe this ain't for me. This is a joke. But uh, 126th application, I, I got a job as a production assistant, which in the video production world is the lowest of the low rungs on the ladder. What would um, what would you what advice would you give to a young person who's in that stage of just applying and applying and applying and then not hearing anything back? Yeah, advice is make looking for a job your job. Um, make it a part of your routine. Like you get up and you're checking. You're on it and you're on it and you're on it. Um, that has to be it because the the opportunities uh, are kind of fleeting. And you've got to be dedicated in, in terms of, and nowadays it's so much easier. Like you can just check every single day, refresh, refresh, get yourself across all the, the media feeds you can and just keep refreshing. Check all, like I, I work for, I used to work for Arsenal and they've got an Arsenal jobs Twitter feed that barely anyone knows about, right? And the advertising models there. So just hunt around, find out who all the places are that you want to apply for. They've got like clicks, interested in jobs, you know, ITV, all these places have these have these things. So make it your job. All right, maybe, you know, do eight hours a day of it. That could be soul-destroying. But you wake up in the morning, you have a cup of coffee, you smash out two hours of like, let's have a look uh, at what jobs I want to apply for. And then, um, and then chase it because you just got to keep hammering away. Can you just tell us about your production assistant job, like what that kind of consisted of? In layman's terms, it consists of doing all the jobs no one else wants to do or has the time to do. So, man, I was getting people lunch. I was sticking stickers on labels if I had to do it, if they needed to pack up the the kit truck, I'm packing it up. If uh, it, was, it was a motorsport, a company that did motorsport. So if some of our equipment came back from the racetrack muddy or dirty, I'd just sit there and clean it, make cups of teas and coffees and all sorts of things. I did anything they asked me to do. You want me to type something up? I'm sure I typed something up on trans. We never didn't do transcriptions, but literally anything um, that I was asked to do, which, which again, like, you know, now I've been around for a while. Like every, every person in a production environment is important. Like I, I truly believe that that entry-level production assistant, they're important. They're an important cog in this because if they're not doing their job, you, you hamper the next person up the chain. Again, I hate that kind of um, lit look at things. But the next teammate then maybe can't do their job as well. So it's all super important. Uh, and what did you kind of learn uh, in that production role? Biggest learning um, from a just technical production sense, I learned how to put TV shows together by watching and watching like you. 
I wasn't a great university learner. I think as just maybe, I don't know what the percentage is, obviously, but um, th there's a probably a large percentage of people that don't learn well from someone standing up and talking at them. Um, I'm probably one of those. I need to be in the mix and learning and looking and asking questions. And so I had a front row seat for how TV was made and I would just sit there and I'd ask and I'd ask and I'd ask and I'd absorb it all. And um, from a, I used to go on what's called a, a OB trucks, which are outside broadcast vans. We used to travel across Australia in these vans um, with all our equipment. You unload at a, a racetrack, you rig the racetrack up and the whole journey, I would just sit there and drill the OB manager, who was also our um, technical director, about how everything worked. I just kept asking questions because you got this expert sitting next to you. You're driving. It's going to take you <laughs> two days to get to Adelaide uh, from Sydney. you got a lot of time, right? You do talk a lot of shit too, but uh, in the middle, there's, there's a good chance to learn. And then uh, from, from a, like a personal point of view, I suppose... Being, being gutted from the 126 applications makes you just like, I'm just not going to stuff this up. And you just approach every single job, like even the most minute jobs with this, I'm not just going to do this crappy job. I'm going to do the best job of this crappy job. And then you just, I just threw that into literally everything and that became a habit. So that's just what you end up doing. Like everything you do, you just give it your all, even if it is a crappy job, because there is loads of crappy jobs that you got to, even as you go up the ladder, there's crappy jobs you got to do, but you give it your all pretty much. What kind of tips would you give to somebody who's maybe um, just got that that first job, it's not exactly what, what they wanted it to be, but they know that they're going to learn a lot? My advice would 100% be, um, there's, there's two parts to it. First of all, you, you don't realise in the moment um, how important doing all those little functions well is. So just make sure you're nailing it. It might not be what you want to be, but you're on step one of the journey. Like you don't get to pick and choose on step one. That's just not how life works. And particularly our industry is a bit unforgiving like that. Um, you, you've got to prove that you can perform other functions before you get to do anything else. So that, that would be one piece of advice. Another is like always act in a professional manner. Um, you know, you're working with some, some seasoned pros out there and if you're, you're mucking about and all the rest of it, because we do have a very word of mouth industry, it, it get like, we work on recommendations. Oh, they're great. Work with them. You won't go too far. And then always just the, the key is, and as a piece of advice, I think I wrote for, for this pod was, um, um, make sure you're good to be around, like be positive, be a really positive collaborator, um, even if you hate making some person you don't like a cup of coffee, just get, just don't show it, put a big grin on your face and get through it because people like people they like. People like to work with people they like to work with, if you know what I mean, if that makes sense. So be that person, be that, that person that people want to collaborate with because even if you're underperforming from a, not underperforming, let's just say behind from a skill point of view, People want to help you if you're a good person and you're a willing collaborator. People will identify that, hey, that person's got something about them, you know, they're bringing positive energy. And that's what draws people and makes other people, like old dudes like me, want to help you and elevate. If you come in like, I can't be asked because I've got to do this and I really want to be an editor, why should I make a cup of coffee? You, you're in big trouble. Life lessons from Carl. You've been told. <laughs> <laughs> 
You've been listening to This Is How, created by Nominet and Liberty, your essential resource for finding a path into digital careers with the brands that you love. Head over to thisishow.uk to listen to more episodes and discover free training and advice to help you land your dream job. You can also give us a follow on Instagram. Our handle is thisishow.uk to keep up to date with regular tips and resources to help you on your career journey. All right, so Carl, if you can tell us how you came to learn to edit. Yeah, look, um, as I was saying before, I watched a lot of editing. Everybody watches TV and content. That's just life. And I, uh, I really wanted, because I'd got myself into production coordinating, so going on loads of shoots, preparing equipment, doing all that kind of stuff. But it still wasn't quite enough creativity for me. So I was like, no, man, I want to edit. So I begged and begged this producer to kind of show me just a basic few buttons um, uh, on the edit suites we were using. And, uh, and yeah, he, he said, all right, I've got this job no one else wants to do. Do you want to do it? And I said, yes. It was a, it was a powerboat racing uh, video. So the powerboat racing team wanted me to make a, yeah. You know anything about powerboat racing? No, i never heard of it. <laughs> Neither do I. And I cut a promo about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they just wanted a little thing made for them. And so I made it. And I think just because I've got, a, I think it's the thing with editing is you got to have a certain feel for it. It's kind of like we call it um, with camera people, you call it the eye. Like if someone's got the eye, you know, you're like, yeah, man, like they're, they're seeing it. That's a nice frame that they got. It's the same with editing. If you've got that timing. And I think I had enough time in for maybe watching so much um, that my first edit was all right. And he's like, all right, we'll give you another one. And then that's how you go. That's how it went. And how confident were you at the time when you were doing it? Not confident at all. <laughs> no, no, come on, man. You, you're young, man. So you're just like, what the hell? I'll give it a swing and um, watch it back a thousand times and, and all the rest of it. And when you enjoy it, like you're like, oh, you know, you're young. So you're getting all hyped about your edits. Oh, this is sick. This is sick. You know, little do you know that it's like, if I watched it now, I'd probably cringe, right? But at the time, you're just hyped off of, oh, the music hitting at the right moment. Rah! And you just totally gassed off it. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I didn't know what I was doing, which is probably a good thing because I, I was just excited about it. I was really happy with it and I wasn't stressed or anything like that. What advice would you give to somebody who is thinking about learning to edit? Oh, man, like there's never a better time to learn how to edit. Like you can download Premiere Pro now from your home and be editing within 20 minutes. Like it's just so accessible. Um and just believe me about the reps thing. Like, you know, there's no harm in just going out, having a bit of fun, shooting some stuff with your phone, testing it out. I mean, the, the other thing um, people do is that there's so many sources of video online, but you can just be, be practicing your cuts, you know, download, download a couple of videos. You can get better so quickly. Um, there's never been more tools out there, but the, I, I find all those tutorial kinds of things, maybe, you've got to at least be comfortable with the tool, know what you're doing and then go, oh yeah, now I want to put on a vision effect. Now I want to do a picture in picture or, or whatever it is. But, but yeah, there's, um, there's no hurdles for anybody starting now to, to get into editing at all. All right, cool. So we're going to take a, a bit of a, a delve back 
into Carl's um, journey. And we want to talk to you about moving to England and what was it like starting again? It was soul destroying. It was like back to that hundred, <laughs> back to that hundred. Well, you, you, you're measuring up so much stuff, right? You know, you got the weather, you got all this kind of stuff. Being so honest. Oh, mate, it was it was tough. It was really really tough to get to get used to it all, but. Um, you know, I was by the time I left Australia, I was a really experienced producer. I was working on um, V8 supercars, which is the highest level of domestic motorsport we have. And um, and then here I land in the UK. First thing they tell me when I had a contact that I asked for advice, I said, what, "What's your advice for getting started in the UK?" And it was just as the global financial crisis hit, and their advice was, "Go back home to Australia." And I'm like, mm, "Cheers, mate. <laughs> thanks for the thanks for the pep talk, pal." You know, called the, called the BBC and they were like, listen, we just laid off about 20 editors, so now's not a good time. Like, oh, this is going well. And then eventually I um, I just, I think I went, I got a CV or something into the local BBC, so BBC Cambridgeshire, because um, I was living in Cambridge at the time. And then I started back again with editing. And it's why, uh, you know, when I talk to you guys, I'm kind of big on having that one anchor skill because as particularly as a producer, like a bit of producing is like knowing people and having contacts and getting things moving. An editor can edit anything. You could say, hey, Carl, go cut horse racing. Like, sick, I'll go do that. And, you know, it's a really transferable skill. Um, you know, it's a, it's a hard skill as opposed to the soft skills of producing. And so I actually had to go back to the BBC. I did two shifts gratis um, for free. So that means for free because they wanted me to make sure I was what I said I was. So there you go, you got your CV, years of TV shows, editing, producing, and I still had to be humbled and, and go in and do a couple of shifts for free. And then that kind of got me going, but there wasn't a lot of shifts, certainly not enough to sustain yourself. Could you talk to us about your Arsenal job and how that happened? Yeah, man, 100%, because it, it's it's a cool story um, to... To make ends meet, I was also filming, um, what do you call them? Uh, just call them presentations from a uh, from a legal perspective. They had to be filmed so that, you know, if if there was something skew if being um, said to the crowd, they had a legal recording to prove it. So that's about as low as you as I thought I could could go as a four. I'm not saying it's bad work at all. I'm not saying that. I'm saying from where I was at to what I was doing, it, it was a bit tough for me. And uh, I've been, like I said, I made finding a job my job. So I was applying every single morning and I got a call back from Arsenal. I'd applied for an editor role and they called me and said, do I want to be apply for the producer role? And I was like, mate, 100%. I said, what, what do you, what's, tell me a bit about it. And they said, oh, it's producing magazine shows. I said, that is literally what I did for motorsport in Australia. Back that up with the fact I'm a huge football fan and an Arsenal fan. Um, I was like ready to go. I was absolutely ready to go. So I went and uh, did the job interview, did round one, um, which is, is intimidating, man. You know, you go into Arsenal in this big old um, uh, boardroom. So it, at Arsenal, I don't know if you know, but they they bought in the new offices, they bought the boardroom from Highbury over panel by panel, right? So this big old wooden boardroom, this huge table, you know, um, is, is, is epic. You sit across there, you know, you're desperate for the work and all the rest of it. So I did my, did my interviews there, did another interview. And just and the reason I'm going into this just kind of to, because I think for young people it's important to know they, 
to prepare for your interviews, like prepare heaps, prepare more than you think you need to prepare because it impresses people. And I went in, I'd become uh, Arsenal TV online is what they had at the time. I subscribed to it. I looked at all their stuff. I watched it all back. I wrote a series of ideas for, for things we could do around Arsenal. So, I mean, look back at the list now, it's unoriginal, but I, ca- I had came there with four pages of ideas. I'd watched everything I had to watch. And, uh, and I, I, I blew their socks off, they told me later, because I was the only one that actually had prepared. And I consider that like standard prep. Um, but apparently people just walk in and I've now I'm on the other side as an interviewer. A lot of people don't prepare. It's quite shocking. All you have to do is a bit of homework and you walk in there really knowing uh, and it, it impresses people. Even if you're maybe a bit not as good as the other person, but you prepared more, you know, I always lean towards the people who prepare. Um, so, yeah, so in a long story short, I had tickets to the, um, the Arsenal game on the Sunday. We had a game, we were, it was a friendly match, the Emirates Cup against Celtic. I had the cheapest seats I could get because, again, I wasn't earning much money. And then uh, on Monday morning, pick up the phone. You've got the Arsenal job. When can you start? I'm a freelancer, so I'll start tomorrow. <laughs> Perfect. So I came into the office on Tuesday. That's Tuesday now. I had a shift at the BBC on Wednesday. I didn't want to let them down. I said, listen, I have one commitment. I want to finish my time there. They were good to me. So I finished my time there on Wednesday. But in the background, I had to prepare for a shoot on Thursday with the entire first team recording the opening title sequence for a show which I had to think of the name of <laughs> in, in between Tuesday morning and getting on set on Thursday morning. I had to come up with the name of the show, what we were going to shoot, what we were going to do with the players, what lines we were going to record and all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, I turned up to the stadium on Thursday morning. So I was in the cheap seat on Sunday. By Thursday morning, I was in the bowels of the stadium um, filming lines with the players. What was it like being uh, around the players? Like, how did you need to act? Like, what did you need to be like? You know what? I'm I'm so fortunate. I've never really gotten starstruck. I think at first, like, I'll be straight up with you guys. At first, you want them to be your mates, right? You're like, oh, mate, you know, I just want to be cool and make everyone laugh and be their friends and all the rest of it. But it, I, that didn't last real long for me. I'm generally a bit matey and jokey anyway. So it wasn't kind of a, a huge problem for me, but um, what, you've got to just switch your gears and say, this is normal people and they're your colleagues. And once you do that, it's cool. Like you just talk to them like a colleague, like, hey, uh, Theo, uh, all right, mate, thanks, thanks for coming over. Let's get these lines recorded nice and quick. We'll get you out of here on time. Just like a rocky with a colleague. Is that Theo Wilcott, you mean? Yeah, yeah, Theo, Theo. Yep. <laughs> yeah, because the other, you know what the weirdest thing is? I always remember this, is that when you're a fan, you call them by their surnames all the time. Mm. You know, Walcott and, you know, Ashavan and all that. And then when I started, it's like, oh, here's Andre. You never call him Ashavan. And so I always call players by their first name, like Bukayo, right? And so oh, I remember Bukayo as a kid. <laughs> you know, I had little Bukayo coming up through the ranks. And um, you always remember, I always do their first names now. So that, that that's just something that changes what were the kind of main skills then that you learn at your time at Arsenal? God, I learned so much of my time at Arsenal. The most relevant one, I think, especially for now, is um, understanding social media, um, especially at the start. You know, uh, I, 
you you coming over from telly, you're a bit of a TV snob. I don't think you get this anymore, by the way. Um, but it was learning to kind of respect and understand social, read into the to the analytics of social, what it's all about. Um, I think that was the biggest thing I learned because you just get better and better at producing. It's like what I said with reps, like my first shoot at Arsenal and my last shoot at Arsenal was a lot better. I was a lot more relaxed, had more control of the set. Like as a, as a producer, you've got a, hey, camera person over here, over there, you know. So you, I got better at that point. But what I learned at Arsenal was uh, that's really relevant is about social and then also about um, managing people because I went from managing my, myself maybe would have a production assistant to so by the end of it, I think I had maybe like 13 or 14 people and then you're managing up as well, managing ciders, all these different conversations that are coming through you as the head of uh, video content. Um, so those two things uh, would be the, the things I learned. All right, cool. So we're coming towards the end and we're going to talk <laughs> through your CV. So just imagine me and Zoe as your next employers. Oh, no. <laughs> we could be. Oh, no. Oh, no. All right. Let me get ready. Cool. So if you could start us with your career highlight. Uh, my career highlight, it sounds super cheesy. Absolutely, I get that. But um, my career highlights always watching the younger people I've worked with, my colleagues, contemporaries, whatever, just go on to kick ass elsewhere. You know, uh, I was just texting with a, um, a friend the other day who, when she started at Arsenal, she her first job I made her film Theo Walcott's Boots, a static object on the ground. Uh, and now she's a DOP, which is a director of photographer. And that gives me more of a boost than anything else. You know, just watching people just get better and better um, is, is the biggest kick you can get possible. Like all the work's good, right? It, it, again, content's a bit, uh, what's the word? So, I hate the phrase high churn, but it lives and it goes, right? So it's, it's good. You can look at it again. But watching people just be kicking ass uh, in, in the future is awesome. awesome. From a professional sense, it's got to be the, from the time at Arsenal, um, turning club media from this really small operation to like a beast that um, was immensely valuable. And, you know, you can communicate to so many fans and you get to engage so many fans. Like that's definitely the highlight. There's, there's heaps of cool stuff in the middle, like documentaries going on tours with, um, with the team is always fun, but just in broad strokes, that's the highlights. Love that, love that. And what is your best piece of work? So I've gone for two because I can never make my mind up. So we did an Invincibles documentary, which was awesome. I got to interview uh, six of the Invincibles team, including Arsene, and uh, get them in quite a reflective mood, which is cool. Um, so they were they were really, really reflective. They gave us great bites. We got it onto Sky Sports. We got onto CNBC in the US. Um, we had the best slot. We were going to air after the Monaco Champions League game um, in 2014. And then um, we lost to Monaco. It was a real upset. And then everyone didn't watch it. <laughs> and it, and it, was, it was really tough. And then probably the other one was the Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang signing piece. Um, signings, uh, we were making tons of signing videos, but with um, Obers, we were like, no, let's, let's really make him something bespoke that's kind of big and glossy. We got quite ambitious. We 
prepared really well for it. We did our research on Oba, what he's into. So we had a look and feel ready to go. We filmed him that morning when he arrived from Dortmund, all in secret, all hush-hush. And then by the end of the day, we had him composited into quite an ornate sequence. And everyone had to nail it across that that whole day like even down to how quick can we get this footage on a card back to the office to edit everyone on certain shift rotations and all sorts of stuff uh, and in the end i think we we raised the bar for signing videos that day people have done i believe maybe better since um but we just sat back at the end of the day and went that is just so cool like if you don't get gassed off watching that you know you you need to look yourself in the mirror because that's awesome <laughs> love that energy Sorry, it is awesome. I, I still look, I still look at it sometimes. Think that was cool. And what was your best failure? Oh man, um, again, you're gonna hate me, but I don't see anything as a failure. I've made some pretty features that didn't go so well, or where you get teed up for a feature and it just turns to crap. I had a very ill-fated. Uh, a f interview with Scary Spice that I wouldn't call it a fa I mean, it's a failure in that we got nothing out of it, but it wasn't my fault. So you get all these kind of little things that don't go to plan. But I like to think that, and it's super cheesy. I'm so sorry for not coming up with something better. But uh, this is just pure cheese. But I just see every time something goes to sh you learn something out of it, just take a learning. And then it's never really a failure. It's a you know, it's a bump in the road rather than a, oh, that just all went bad. Because, you know, we've had kit leaks, like we accidentally leak a kit. Like I've, you know, our team did that one year. Um, What's a kit leak? Oh, uh, you know how um, you have a new jersey every year and it's kind of like a big reveal and all the rest of it. So that there was one year where half a frame of Aaron Ramsey in the back of a shot was wearing the kit and someone picked up on it and it leaked out. And we're like, that is just how the heck did the person see that but it was on my watch and it's my fault then no matter who in the team did it it's 100 percent my fault so yeah so you make failures but again you know what <laughs> we didn't do it again so that's that's what i mean you know it's disappointing but you got to say you know it, and it actually is a good smack in the head every now and again for for the team because you're working so fast make this make this get this out get this out that is important that you actually every now and again do have a humbling experience where it kind of resets everyone, goes, all right, we've got to just pay more attention to detail. And lastly, what is your dream project? My dream project has been for many years of my life making sports documentaries. Um, that's all I really wanted to do. I've been able to do some on Arsenal Legends, on the Invincibles, um, so I've kind of done my dream project. Um, I, I'm living the dream. I've, I supported Arsenal. I work for them, and I'm a basketball fan. I work for the NBA. So, you know, nail, nailed that. But just m making more documentaries, I suppose. I like to. I like storytelling. Uh, I, I really like to to unearth untold sporting stories and, and tell them. But to be honest, people are already doing that at a very high level now. There's so much good stuff you can watch in that in that space. But that's all I really want to do. Humble. You are very, very humble. What do you think? Are we gonna might have to give him one more interview and see. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Oh, thank you so much, Carl. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been so good talking to you. Uh, I've learned loads, uh, and this is so much for the listeners to kind of take away. So thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome, guys. You've been listening to This Is How, created by Nominate and Liberty. If you've enjoyed this conversation and you're feeling inspired to develop your own digital skills, head over to thisishow.uk where you can find more information on all the helpful tips and advice shared on today's podcast, as well as trying our new This Is How quiz to uncover more about what you're good at and what job roles could be a good match for you.